you know, you can get rid of 90% of your liver and still function. If you get rid of one more percent, you have full-blown liver failure and you die. A lot of people do not understand that being in ketosis doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose fat. Why is our insulin elevated? Why is our glucose elevated? We're just treating the number. And that I think we need to get away from and we need to start focusing on the underlying cause, which everything that you and I have talked about on this um, podcast is really going to the root cause. If you think about it, a lot of theories that are discounted in the past in the medical community come back around, you know, 50, 100, 200 years later. And for some reason, we realize, oh, you know what? That guy who was uh, saying this was actually right. The monks used to go and meditate and reach nirvana. Well, I'm, I'm assuming probably some of that nirvana is because they were in deep ketosis. They weren't eating. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is the biohacking doctor, John Lemansky. John is a board-certified physician of internal medicine who has worked with hundreds of patients. His approach focuses on nutrition, and he's a big proponent of the ketogenic diet as well. John, I'm glad that you could make it to the show, and uh, I want to welcome you. Yeah, thank you, Sim. Really good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad. So, like, let's talk about keto, because it doesn't really fit the mainstream narrative or the mainstream uh, dietary recommendations of health and obesity. So, how did you get involved with keto, and uh, how did you imp implement it into your practice? Yeah, great question. Um, so, I've actually been doing... A version of keto for 12, 13 years. And uh, you're right, it's, it's not what the mainstream uh, medical community has recommended, um, but it's starting to change. And I think hopefully soon uh, we'll see that the mainstream will kind of catch up. But my story is I um, used to be a pretty competitive triathlete, not professional, but I used to do quite a bit of training. And um, I was very healthy. I thought I ate very well. I was mostly, you know, eating vegetables, lean fish, no fat whatsoever. Um, very low body fat percentage, you know, muscular. And I had to do some blood work to see kind of for an experiment when I was in medical school. And what I found out was that I had actually developed insulin resistance and I was pre-diabetic. Mm. Um, and so... At that time, I figured this, this is wrong. This, how can this be? So I rechecked the labs and sure enough, I was still pre-diabetic. And at the time, there wasn't much information out there. I thought I was following you know, the perfect uh, recommended diet. I was exercising. And so I started going down the path of figuring out why is this happening? Right? This doesn't make sense. And um, at the time, not too much information. There wasn't really much on the internet. So I started looking at Atkins, um, and reading some of the research behind that and started implementing more fat into my diet. And three months later, rechecked my labs, everything had re resumed and was uh, back to normal. So that got me thinking, well, maybe there is something more to it than just eat, you know, very, very high vegetable diet with no fat. Mm. And since then, it's been a progression where now we're having so much research out there looking at specifically the ketogenic diet really good books like Good Calories, Bad Calories by Dr. Or Gary Tobbs. And, um, you know, the science is catching up to what you and I know, which is that saturated fats, healthy fats are actually necessary for nearly every function in the body. Um, and so for the last six, seven years, I've been strictly uh, keto. And, uh, yeah, it's been basically part of my lifestyle. Um, since then... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I wanted to say that uh, yeah, a lot of people follow the same story in the sense that their mess, their health got messed up because of eating the mainstream diet, or the standard American diet, uh, or even like the food pyramid diet as well. And <laughs> and it's funny how to see how the how going the opposite direction completely improves their health mm -hmm. uh, entirely. And it's quite funny to see. What are what are some? Yeah, of and unfortunately, we we've exported it to Europe. So. Oh yeah, well, well, I think like uh, although Europe has it has like this sort of a buffer zone that we've seen how what kind of results the high grain diet has 
brought about in the states so we can we have yeah. more time to fix it i think but what are some of the you know i hope so yeah yeah what are some of the diseases you've seen keto has benefited from like uh, do you recommend keto for all of your patients or are there some sort of maybe genetic differences that you pay attention to yeah, the, so there are some genetic differences you have to worry about sometimes. Um, but in general, you know, what we're learning is that a lot of these diseases that in medicine we think are isolated. So, you know, if you take autoimmune diseases, we think, you know, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease. If you really look at what the basis is for all these diseases, yeah, you have a genetic predisposition probably, but... Um, you know, the pro-inflammatory state from our modern way of living plus the modern diet plus all the processed food really is activating from an epigenetic standpoint all these different diseases. So like me, a lot of the stories that I've heard from clients or from people I've met in different conferences is the same thing. I had XYZ disease and I, nothing worked for me. Medications had horrible side effects. So I decided, hey, I'm going to try this ketogenic diet. And inevitably, majority of people have tremendous success. Hmm. And I think it's funny because, you know, it's been labeled as almost like an extreme diet. But if you think about it, we're really going back to a normal way of eating, right? We're not saying you need to eat 100% calories of fat and forget protein and forget carbohydrates. We're not saying that at all. We're saying it's really balanced uh, nutrition, which... Um, everybody can, can benefit from. If you get away from the premise that saturated fat causes cardiovascular disease, which is really kind of what's driven 60, 70 years of misinformation in terms of what we should do from a medical community. Um, and so I think pretty much the only person, or there's a few situations that I would say you, you probably don't want to be very, very strict, ketogenic, pregnant, um, breastfeeding, young children, those you can do more of a modified version, but still have you know tremendous benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you that you know over the course of the last two decades, there's been a lot of misinformation about fat, cholesterol, and and keto and carbohydrates and all those th all those things. So, have you received any kind of backlash from these traditional doctors who haven't caught up with the latest information and latest research of keto? Yeah, I wouldn't say backlash. I would say skepticism. So there still is quite a bit of skepticism in, in the community. And I understand from a medical community standpoint, because you know everything is based on randomized controlled trials. In order to be part of the standard of care and what we recommend for people, you have to be able to document in these randomized controlled trials that, yes, this is you know the benefit. However, having said that, most of these randomized controlled trials are now mostly looking at medications, not dietary. Because if you think about it, there's really no uh, money to be made from a ketogenic diet for pharmaceutical companies and, and big institutions. I do hope that because there are more research studies coming out from people like Volokh and Finney and Dr. Westman, that there's more credibility now to ketogenic diet from a, a medical standpoint, from a randomized control standpoint. And mm -hmm. if you look at the studies, and I, Dr. Einfeld from Diet Doctor also uh, has been showing that, you know, all the studies that have looked at a low-carbohydrate diet versus a low-fat diet, the low-carbohydrate diet wins out, you know, hands down, or it's equivocal. Mm -hmm. So I think as we get more of these research studies that – significantly prove what you and I know, the medical community hopefully will, will follow and start recommending it. Well, ho let's hope so, because it takes a lot of common sense, actually, to you know, understand the simple studies in the sense of looking at the results, because mm -hmm. as, as we've seen, the food pyramid hasn't delivered any results. It has actually led to a, you know, more negative results in people. There are more people who are obese, who have diabetes and stuff like that. And even the doctors themselves, most doctors aren't healthy like you, and <laughs> they're they're actually obese <laughs> and they have diabetes. So you have a like you you and yeah. your family, you have like skin in the game. You practice what you preach in this sense, and uh, you're right. kind of delivering this, the results, which is funny. And w let's hope that it improves because you know the definition of in of insanity is doing the same things over and over again while expecting different results. So and you know, yeah. low low fat diet hasn't delivered the results. So. 
people die of common sense. Yeah, if anything, if you look at, I mean, as you mentioned, the trends in the United States, I mean, obesity is, this is a pandemic. This is not just in the United States. It's being exported around the world. You know, the number of people who are diabetic and pre-diabetic is mm. 700 million people worldwide. I mean, the numbers are staggering. And so um, you would think that just based on looking at, we've been recommending this kind of way of eating, and these are the results that we've gotten, you would think that people would say, hmm, maybe this is not working out so good. Right. But unfortunately, you know, that hasn't happened as of yet. But if you look at some of the guidelines in the United States, they're starting to change. So they're starting to say, okay, you can have some saturated fat. Maybe you need to get rid of the refined processed sugars. Um, you know, Europe uh, guidelines are, are ahead of ours. Um, and so, you know, I think hopefully we'll catch up. Uh, but my concern is, will we catch up fast enough to make this pandemic go the opposite direction? And I don't that's going to happen because, you know, obesity rates, diabetic rates in our children is also going exponential. Right. Um, and so that's my biggest concern. And so you mentioned, yeah, I practice what I pr preach. My children, my wife and I, we are all, you know, very much into ketogenic lifestyle. And I don't like calling it a diet because I don't think it's a diet. It's, yeah. it's a way of living. And then we do, you know, the biohacking to try to offset some of the modern kind of way of living or living. Yeah, and I'm also scared for the third world countries or the second world countries like India and mm -hmm. China. They're also mm -hmm. like starting to show that most of the population is diabetic and there's going to be another wave of obese people oh, yeah. in there as well. And, you know, that doesn't go to, that doesn't go to say that uh, other diets that follow similar principles like keto, like paleo or Mediterranean diet, that they can't work. They can do work. And there are some, you know, maybe like unique, characteristics that uh, are similar to, to, to the metabolic state of ketosis. So can you like say maybe a few of these kind of key principles of a diet that would maintain health and not make you obese? Sure. Yeah. So great question. Um, you know, the, for a ketogenic diet, you have kind of a keto and then you have low carb, high fat. And so if you're using uh, keto for some therapeutic reason, meaning you have epilepsy or you have cancer or you have some autoimmune disease, then I think being strict ketogenic is ideal. Hmm. But being paleo uh, or being Atkins, I think is, is fine uh, for a lot of people. Uh, my take on it is if you have metabolism that has been so uh, destroyed by uh, refined carbohydrates, processed food, then you need to go the opposite direction to really kind of try to reset your metabolism. Mm. But yeah, I mean, paleo, you're eating quality meat. They, they recommend, you know, quality sources of products, um, you know, more in terms of carbohydrates. But again, even with carbohydrates, we have to really step back and say, okay, not all carbohydrates are evil. They're not mm. the, yeah. the, the evil thing that we make them out to be. Uh, but the refined processed foods, 100% you have to get rid of them. And if you look at all these different kind of diets, they all recommend get rid of the processed foods. Mm. If you do that, you know, you can eat more carbohydrates if your metabolism isn't completely destroyed and be okay. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to most of these kind of way of eating. And if you think about it, they're all kind of going in the same direction, meaning that get rid of the processed foods, focus on high quality food because you know, eating uh, protein from a source that is, you know, with um, hormones and fed a, a grain diet, you're going to get all that in the meat. Mm. And so that's the focus is also on the quality of the food. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that it's not just calories in and calories out because you can still get diabetes even if you eat, uh, let's say, you, you eat less calories, but if you eat like these processed mm -hmm. carbs and, you know, whatever fits your macros in this sense, you can still get diabetes. Yeah. And, and uh, what, what, what's the long-term health problems are going to be as well? They're going to be like revealed only after years. Correct. And the body is, is, is very, very smart in the sense that, you know, you can get rid of 90% of your liver and still function. <laughs> but if you get rid of one more percent, you have full-blown liver failure and you die. Mm -hmm. Same thing with heart. So our body can, can absorb so much damage that we don't see it outwardly. Yeah. And so if you think about it, you know, people who are skinny fat um, in our country or in, in Europe and the world, those people are at much higher risk of having 
significant negative outcomes because people focus on weight. So if you're obese, people are saying, hey, you need to lose weight. You need to see your doctor. Your doctor says you need to lose weight. If you're skinny fat, people don't say that. And um, so it's definitely something that calories in equals calories out has, has also done tremendous amount of damage to us because calories need to be looked at more in terms of their hormonal effect on the body. You know, what do they do to insulin? What do they do to glucagon? What do they do to your stress hormones versus just, you know, I eat 500 calories, I burn off 500 calories and I'm net uh, neutral. No, not at all. Not at all. Mm. Yeah. It's good that you mentioned uh, that skinny fat, uh, the skinny fat look because being skinny fat literally means that your body is starving. You're cannibalizing your own muscle tissue while, 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 maintaining the fat tissue as because your body thinks it's deprived of these nutrients and yeah it's it's correct it's a quite you know it, it doesn't fit our way of thinking of what is healthy in this sense yeah and because if you and you mentioned something very interesting in that you know you can have this situation where you are consuming a lot of calories let's say you go to fast food and you eat you know one of their meals that's 2,000 calories your body will see that there's no nutrients in it. And so your cells are still sending out signals saying, look, you know, yeah, you had 2000 calories, but I didn't get any nutrition in my cells. Mitochondria are not getting the energy that they need. And so you're still having signals saying, look, I'm hungry. I need to eat more. Hmm. And then you go down this vicious cycle of, you know, modern obesity. Yeah. Your body or your fat cells are nourished, but your brain is still starving. And correct, that's correct. A big problem. And, di- and different foods have different satiety effects as well, which is a good Absolutely. segue to talk about uh, one of your uh, recent uh, experiments uh, with Jimmy Moore <laughs> with, about like consuming high amounts of protein. So can you tell us like, yeah. what, why did you do it and what, uh, what were the results? Yeah, yeah. We've got a lot of backlash for, um, for doing it. But um, so basically, uh, so Jimmy Moore and I are doing a podcast called the Keto Hacking MD Podcast. And, and what we're trying to show is that a ketogenic lifestyle is extremely important. It's the basis for pretty much everything. But if you just do nutrition in a bubble and you don't start addressing other things in life, that modern life that are affecting us like sleep, stress reduction, exercise, that you're probably going to stall and not have the, the degree of success that you're looking for. So one of the experiments that we did was a three to one protein to fat ratio. So Dr. Ted Naiman sometimes will recommend for a short period of time for his uh, patients to do this kind of diet where you're basically trying to increase metabolism and um, lose you know, body fat. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to test this theory because in the keto world right now, there is this question of is protein or fat really the predominant macronutrient that causes satiety? And one of the things that we've noticed is that with the advent of MCT oils and a lot of these shakes, people are starting to down, you know, high levels of fat uh, calories in liquid form. Mm. And yeah, they're getting ketones from the MCT, but is that actually really healthy and are they going to lose weight, which is a lot of uh, what people do keto for. Mm. And so we wanted to see, okay, does protein cause satiety? Is there a negative outcome from doing a very high protein diet? So the three grams to one gram protein to fat ratio, and we basically eliminated carbohydrates to try to, you know, get rid of that confounding variable. Mm -hmm. In his protocol, he does recommend 30 grams of of carbohydrates. So Jimmy Moore is on one scale, you know, um, still struggling with some weight loss, does have some uh, insulin resistance, and then on my end, you know, a very low body fat percentage and no more insulin resistance. And so we wanted to see the the d- different range and what the response would be so and we documented this with blood ketone levels and a um, freestyle libre flash glucose monitor so it's not continuous you have to put the monitor over it but i'm so ocd that i checked it every like two minutes so i had a pretty good uh documentation and uh before we started i did a um, body impedance analysis so i have a machine that does basically body fat percentage, lean muscle mass, water weight. And so my body fat percentage was about 8%. So I was very keto adapted. My initial ketone levels were very high in the fours and my glucose usually ranges about 60 fasting in the morning. So what I had noticed personally was that consuming that much protein, which for me was about 195 grams um, and no fat essentially, or very little fat, about 60 grams of fat, Mm-hmm. I had precipitous drop in my ketones. My glucose level started going up. 
and I felt really bad. And so I, I tell the story that before I became keto adapted, I would eat a meal, post meal, I would have a hypoglycemic episode. I would have that postprandial stupor. I would feel horrible. And then I would be hungry 30 minutes later, which is classic, right? Since being keto for, you know, 13 years, um, I, I do not get that experience anymore. I do not get that postprandial stupor. And so when I started eating this way again, that's what happened. I started feeling kind of full, but not in the full sense where I feel keto adapted and I'm just at a good energy level. I had that kind of, you know, heavy stomach. And then afterwards I would feel hungry 30 minutes later and my um, appetite level actually increased. So I was hungry more frequently and I was starting to think about food again. So I went the seven days, um, did add some lean body mass, about one, one and a half pounds, and did drop a little bit in terms of fat mass. Although there is some variable degree of uncertainty with the test. So whether or not I actually did that, I don't know. But I felt like I had more muscle mass. But the takeaway for me was that I didn't like the way I felt again. So I didn't like feeling like I was always thinking about food. I was always hungry or having that postprandial stupor. Jimmy, on the other hand, had a much different experience where he became hypoglycemic very quickly and symptomatic from it with his blood glucose in the 50s, mm -hmm. still maintaining ketones in the 1 to 1.5 range. Um, he had to eat much higher levels of protein because of his um, lean body mass. He's 6'3", and he's a bigger guy. Um, but he had a pretty bad experience. And so I think what we were trying to show is that doing high, high protein may not be uh, a very safe thing if you have insulin resistance and possible uh, right. glucagon resistance as well. Right. Yeah. I think it's... So yeah. Kind of I think like the reason why you experience this hypoglycemia and uh, hungriness is that you kind of kick yourself out of ketosis with consuming that much protein and that's going to trigger your body to go over into the sugar burning mode again and because you're eating like zero zero carbs and little to no fat yep. then your body doesn't have access to any energy and uh, basically Correct. that's going to cause like maybe even like muscle catabolism in some cases i would believe yeah and you get almost it's you know it's called rabbit starvation right so the old um, kind of hunter gatherers knew this that if they just ate protein by itself, high levels of protein, then they would feel bad, tired. But as soon as they started implementing fat into their diet, and if you do a one-to-one -one ratio, which is essentially ketogenic, mm -hmm. then that's, that's a different story. And you could probably consume a higher level of protein without having the impact like you know I had or Jimmy had. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I think um, is not talked about enough is that the hunter-gatherer society, they would eat mostly you know the organ meats they would eat the mm -hmm. liver the adrenal glands the tongue the the parts mm -hmm. of the animal that had you know the heart that had a lot of fat mm -hmm. and then you know the, the lean muscle they would throw to the dogs so the it's important to have this ratio where you need fat and you need fat for you know hormone production for your brain for every function in the body but you also do need some protein and i think my takeaway from it the positive takeaway was that I've increased my protein intake a little bit. I was probably underdoing it some. Yeah, yeah. I think like uh, there is a like, fear amongst keto people that don't eat too much protein because of gluconeogenesis right. and things like that. But in reality, it's not like a strict line where you, if you surpass it even by an inch, you're going to get kicked out of ketosis. There's like a, quite a big buffer zone in the sense. I could imagine you could consume like, in your, in your example, you were, you were saying you consume like 190 grams of protein every day. So I would yeah. suggest like maybe if you stay around 170 and 180, you can safely be always in this keto state all the time still. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, obviously taking into account, you know, exercise, you know, activity yeah. level, how much fat you're consuming. Um, you know, I do a BMR, so I know kind of my basic metabolic rate around what it is. I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm trying to maintain where I'm at. So I, I, I can get into a situation where I can calculate exactly how much I probably can consume. I've done this for so long that I don't need to calculate. And part of what I really like about it is that I know exactly what works for me. Um, so I don't have to sit there and do my macros and, and calculate um, unless I'm doing an experiment where then I kind of want to document, okay, this is what's happening. This is what I'm in, you know, consuming 
so that people understand, okay, this is what has changed. But yeah, I think protein, and it's still debated in, in um, the internet circles, and I think we're probably overdoing it in terms of how much debate we're doing. Um, <laughs> I think consume protein, you know, don't do 300 grams of protein. There's really no need for it. Yeah. Um, protein is not your enemy, um, you know, as long as you're consuming healthy fats with it. I, really think it's, I think it's much more healthier and much more effective to be focusing on eating these fattier chunks of meat and uh, mm -hmm. other, other animal sources rather than putting on extra MCT oil and extra butter right. on, on top of all of your foods because yeah, it promotes yeah. other you know, metabolic pathways that are associated with health and uh, lower body fat and uh, things like that. Yeah, and I think that's kind of... Um, part of what's what i mentioned earlier where with the um you know really push for mct products bulletproof coffee right, right. you know all these products which I'll, I'll be the first to say i i have some mct oil in my um, morning coffee right now i'm doing more of a matcha tea because i'm trying to get the hmm. antioxidants but you know you can have a little bit just don't make that your primary source of of nutrition and then skip on the protein because you want to stay in ketosis i think that's what we're seeing, and especially when you have keto becoming so popular, a lot of products coming to market, and that's the danger. And so I can understand from the protein camp of the guys like Keto Gains and who are promoting you know, more of a one-to-one -one diet that you, know, you need to have protein, don't skip out on the protein. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that also in the carnivore uh, diet that people are really starting to gravitate towards too because that's essentially what they're doing, right? They're doing one-to-one yeah. -one ratio fatty chunks of meat, getting the, the quality of meat. Mm. The other thing I'd like to say just on in terms of oils is that, or fats is that, you know, we've been telling people that saturated fats are, are extremely dangerous, but we have to be careful now that we don't just do MCT based oils as our own source of fat. We need to have a, a wide range of, you know, saturated, polyunsaturated and unsaturated fats. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I fear like there's definitely a lot of confirmation bias in in all camps of this discussion like especially sure. like the carnivore diet they're definitely gonna very yeah. oh yeah we're gonna we can eat a lot of more protein and we can eat more meat and stuff like that i love protein or you need only a certain amount of protein every day and any excess doesn't doesn't benefit you that much so protein rocks correct and and then you know the flip side is what about mTOR activation right. you know is there an issue in terms of longevity what about, um, you know, from an ecological standpoint, are we going to be consuming so much meat that it's becoming, you know, detriment to our yeah. uh, environment? So I personally, I'm not opposed to people saying I want to do carnivore versus a Western diet. If you had to choose between the two, carnivore hands down. Yeah. For me personally, I like a variety of foods. So mm -hmm. I like to have other foods in my diet. And so eating meat, uh, only meat for the rest of my life, I don't think I would like to do that. Mm. And I also like to think that uh, implementing these different plants and uh, herbs and vegetables, they have like yeah. a much more net positive effect on your longevity and your gut microbiome and uh, things of like that right. by, you know, making your, making your metabolism more robust as well. Yeah. yeah, and there are, you know, quite a bit of studies in terms of the gut microbe that you know, having healthy carbohydrates, healthy fiber is, is essential for them to survive and thrive. You know, people say, well, I'll just take a probiotic and that'll be the answer. And, and the reality is most probiotics are just four strains. And by the time they get to the colon, which is where you need them, they're all dead anyways because yeah. of the stomach acid and, and the transition. There are some newer kind of products that are coming to the market that um, are much higher concentration and they seem to have some benefit in terms of populating the colon. But I would rather do it from a natural source of uh, you know, healthy carbohydrates like greens, vegetables, asparagus, things like that, where you get more of the, the micronutrients as well, which are essential. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, you, you get them in a more balanced ratio as well, in a more natural yeah. way. And yeah, and I think, you know, you really want to go back to eating, eating real food, right. you know, not processed, not trying to hit your macros so you avoid carbohydrates completely. Um, you know, obviously, you stay away from the refined products and, and grains and, you know, legumes and stuff like that. But real food is, is where it's at. Yeah, I totally agree. And you also support intermittent fasting probably as well, right? 
Yes, absolutely. So what, what kind of fasting do you do? Yeah, so me personally, I do uh, intermittent fasting every day. Uh, six out of seven days of the week, I will usually do about a 24-hour fast. So I eat dinner. Um, you know, I do have some coffee or tea in the morning with a little bit of MCT. But otherwise, for me, again, I'm not doing it for weight loss, but the way that I feel, I feel very energetic. I have a lot to do. Um, and so for me, it really helps where I'm basically in fat burning mode. Ketones are, are effective. My fatty acids are being used for energy. And then when I eat, I'll usually do a workout um, so that you know my skeletal muscles, glute 4 activated. And so I eat more carbohydrates at that point in terms of vegetables. But I don't get a glucose spike, right? Because they're slow absorbing. They're combined with healthy fat and protein. And my muscles are, are ready for food because I've had some glycogen, um, you know, depletion from fasting and exercise. And then I'll usually do um, on Saturday or Sunday more of a refeed in terms of I'll eat more uh, food throughout the day because I don't want to be so strictly car uh, keto adapted and in hardcore ketosis that I start having some impact on my hormones like thyroid, mm. testosterone. So for me, that's worked very well. And then um, every three or four months, I'll do an extended fast. Mm. So five-day fast, water and electrolyte only, more for longevity. So I'm getting up there in age. I'm going to be 40 in September. And I want to make sure that you know, I'm healthy and I can live you know, a normal, healthy, long life. I don't want to be 140, but I also don't want to be you know, 70 and in a hospital, you know, chronically ill. And so the studies that I've looked at look at, you know, extended fasting and the, the benefits in terms of autophagy and uh, mitophagy. And for me, it's, uh, it's actually quite empowering to do it. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of fasting as well. Like it's, it's, it's simply like so easy. It's so effective. And it's, it's like a, one of the best natural nootropics as well. Like it puts your mind into this deeper, deeper ketosis and, and uh, put your it increases your attention and focus and all those good stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I've noticed. You know, looking at what you're up to, you know, you're very busy doing a lot of things as well. And so, you know, it, it's almost uh, liberating in the sense that you don't have to think about food. You know, you just okay. I'm doing work. And after you've been doing intermittent fasting and extended fasting, it's it's actually quite easy. You know, the second day, okay, maybe a little bit of. Uh, you know, some salivation. But after that, I mean, I, I really don't get that second day, oh, I'm going to, yeah. you know, kill everybody because I'm so hungry. I feel great. And then the, the mental clarity is amazing. Um, and then I'll combine it with biohacking techniques to try to really kind of push the envelope in terms of, you know, regeneration of my immune system and uh, repair. So mm. yeah, I think it's uh, fantastic. How do, you, how do you feel? How does it affect your sleep? Do, do you get to sleep still? Yeah. So I noticed you're wearing your aura ring. Um, and so I use that as well to, to track uh, my sleep pattern. So I would say after nutrition, uh, sleep is, is probably the most important thing in terms of being healthy. Um, and it's a vicious cycle. And, and if you don't get adequate sleep and not just duration of sleep, but the quality of sleep, mm. one of the most fascinating areas of research right now, I think is, is sleep patterns. And so for me, because I used to work as a physician, I would work, you know, they would make us work 36 hours straight. Uh, so I was up all night. Mm -hmm. Sleep for me has been very difficult to um, get back to the quality of sleep that I need. You know, we are surrounded in our modern society with EMF, with blue light. Um, so we have so many things that are affecting our ability to actually get that deep sleep. Yeah. And our solution is, well, here, take Ambien. And then, you know, have some crazy tweet in the middle of the night. Um, and, and so instead of doing all that, we need to focus back on sleep. And so when I'm in extended fasting mode, my deep sleep goes through the roof. Mm. So if I can get uh, 45 minutes of deep sleep on a normal day, for me, that's, that's very good. Mm. When I do extended fasting, usually it'll get up into the hour and 45 minutes, hour and a half. And then my REM sleep, you'll see very, very long periods of REM where it's like two and a half hours at a time. So, and I'm sure you've noticed this, that when I wake up in the morning, I can tell you how my sleep pattern was. I don't have to look at the aura ring anymore mm. because I know intuitively, okay, this is how I feel. I guarantee you I had, 
tremendous deep sleep and REM sleep. And so I, I have noticed a, a very, very positive impact on, on those things. Mm. Yeah, I also like to, I also notice similar, similar patterns that during extended fast, I sleep a lot better because I think, first of all, it may be because of the, not having to digest food or anything like yeah. that. And secondly, Absolutely. I also think like it's something to, because of being tired, being more tired overall and kind of in this depleted state. So your body simply dozes off more easily. Yeah. And I, what I do also is I'll check my HRV, which, um, mm. you know, my heart rate variability, um, I check it every day, but I'll, I'll notice when I'm doing the extended fast, my HRV will go up, you know, much higher. Um, because I think, like you mentioned, you're not digesting food. Um, and so there's not that stressor in terms of trying to digest. Um, and so you're able to really kind of activate the parasympathetic nervous system and, and your sleep is, is much improved. Have you noticed like how these different foods and diets, have they, how do they influence your heart rate variability? Yeah, I've been doing quite a bit of experiments with that. Um, I have noticed actually you can uh, kind of document specific foods. So for instance, in the ketogenic world, when people are starting off, a lot of times what I've noticed is that they'll do very, very high dairy as their kind of fat macro because it's easy to, to get to that fat macro, right? Yeah. But dairy can be very insulinogenic. And especially in the United States, based on the cows that we use, you know, they have a lot of casein um, and lactose. Some people have a hard time with that. So I use it a lot of times with people who have potentially kind of stalled out and uh, maybe their ESR is high, their CRP is still a little high and their insulin is still higher than we would expect. So we'll do testing where we'll check, okay, let's say we think dairy is the issue. So we'll isolate it and check a resting uh, HRV in the morning, um, eat a piece of dairy that we, we try to keep it where it's, you know, consistent amount. And then we'll check HRV levels, you know, 30 minutes, hour, every 30 minutes for about four or five hours to see what is the impact. And you can see quite a, quite a change in terms of HRV. So it gives you kind of an idea, well, maybe this is the source of some of the inflammation, the insulin um, that I need to address. And I've found that it, it could be quite beneficial. Um, and I know some of the HRV guys who are really dedicated to this are starting to look at, you know, ways to, to document and track uh, specifically with food. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with high protein. You know, when I was eating the high protein, um, my HRV would go down um, mm -hmm. because I think it was too much of a, a inflammatory kind of process for my body and still was causing some insulin spike you know, not dramatic, but some insulin spike to do some of the gluconeogenesis. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very important to kind of pay attention to, or to at least develop this intuition about how different foods affect your specific body. And uh, th there are a lot of allergens that potentially may cause mm -hmm. like more inflammation, disrupt your sleep and, and uh, change your heart rate variability as well. So it's an important thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and you can see also as you change your, your diet, um, and the microbe is, is impacted. Sometimes things can be reintroduced and not cause the same um, yeah. you know, issue as before. So that also I think is important to, to note that you can, you can modify things as you go along in this process. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, coming back to the fasting for a bit, like, do you think it's necessary to combine keto with fasting? Because you know, ketosis is already mimicking the physiology of fasting and you know, you could gain some of the benefits of being in a fasted state while still eating a keto diet. So do you think like, are there any unique characteristics for both fasting and keto that you need to kind of combine it together? Well, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so, you know, when we talk about fasting, obviously there's, there's differences, but if you look at uh, being in a ketogenic state as a way to influence your hormones, right? And let's talk about insulin because that's really the, the main driving hormone. So you really want to suppress insulin to activate your fat stores and use those as your primary source. Mm -hmm. You could theoretically be in a, um, in a state where you're consuming enough calories, mostly fat calories, and you're not burning through your glycogen store where your insulin is suppressed, but you're consuming enough calories where you really are not activating your own fat stores. Mm -hmm. And so I see this a lot with people who are in ketosis based on their numbers, but they're not losing weight and they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. In that situation, 
combining intermittent fasting with a ketogenic uh, lifestyle can kind of push them over the edge where they start actually using their own fat stores. Obviously, when they eat, then they use those energy um, for, or that food for energy. And then they go back into uh, ketosis using their own fat stores. So a lot of people do not equ- uh, understand that being in ketosis doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose fat. Um, and so in that situation, I think it's extremely powerful. Um, I still think that if you look at the studies and, and Dr. Panda from the Salk Institute looked at this, where if you take the same calories and you combine it within an eight window, eight hour window, right? So they had two groups, one group ate the same calories, but just condensed it into eight hour window. And the other group kind of ate whenever they wanted to. The group who had an eight hour window of eating, decrease their um, uh, body weight by about 20% more than the other group. So I think it's extremely powerful. I, I, would rec- I recommend it for pretty much everybody. But the caveat being that I do not recommend that people go from a Western diet and just say, okay, I'm going to fast for five days. It'll be the most miserable experience that they will ever have because it's not fat adapted and it takes time for the body you know, at a cellular level to actually make the enzymes necessary to start converting fatty acids into ketones. It doesn't happen like that. Hmm. So you and I, because we're so keto adapted, you could go tomorrow and fast for five days and be okay. I have no problems. But somebody who's not used to this will feel horrible. They'll be hypoglycemic. They'll be miserable. And then they'll never fast again. <laughs> so uh, I think you have to keep it into the context of, you know, what your experience is and, and uh, do it that way. But uh, for me and my clients, I think it's, it's essential. Yeah, I think it's, it's a vital part of our ancestral history as well. We, we never, right. we, we hunted together has never ate a ketogenic diet or something like that. They, they simply experienced transient ketosis all the time because they ate less right. frequently and uh, they, they experienced like periods of famine and starvation. So they were keto adapted all the time almost, even while eating like, let's say, some fruits and berries and stuff like that. And, uh, right. I, and yeah, go ahead. No, no, I think that's very important because we live in a, in a era of convenience, right? So we can get whatever we want at any moment. I want, you know, I used to live in New York and you could call and say, okay, I want Chinese food. I want sushi. I want Mexican, whatever you want, you can get it in an instance. And so now, you know, we have, you know, food, we have snacks. I mean, you, you name it. I see people eating nonstop. And, and so, this idea that you have to be consuming food at all times is, is number one, unhealthy, but number two, from an ancestral standpoint, not how we used to live. So I agree with you 100%. I mean, this is a natural state um, that you and I are experiencing. Yeah, I would, I would even dare to say that fasting is more important than, uh, than keto, in a sense, of doing daily intermittent fasting. Because if you are eating keto, then you're experiencing like this semi-fasted state even while you're eating. But if you're not doing keto, then you're practically in this constantly fed state all the time and you're not going to gain the other metabolic benefits of fasting, like, you know, reduced inflammation and uh, lower insulin and uh, autophagy and stem cell growth and things like that. So even if you're eating a high carb diet, then it's even more important to do daily intermittent fasting of at least like the 16 hour eight window. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think what I'm excited about right now in terms of research is that the research starting to focus on specific questions that I have, like, like what you mentioned with intermittent fasting, long-term fasting, um, you know, ketogenic diets, uh, and their impact on health markers, on inflammation, on hormonal impact, which for me is much more important than just, you know, losing weight. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about some other biohacks as well. You, you mentioned HRV. So what are some other biohacks you've experimented with? Yeah, I've pretty much done all the biohacks out there um, because, number one, I'm interested in, in the research behind most of them, but I'm also recommending this to people uh, that I work with, and I, I have to know what it feels like or what the body impact is before I say, hey, you should go do this. So some of my favorites are um, cold thermogenesis. So um, I know where you guys are um, or where you are, there's a lot of... <laughs> cold water exposure and cold exposure. Um, and the benefits I found are amazing. Um, so I do a lot of 
cold thermogenesis. I'm traveling right now, so I'll just do ice bags in a, in a bath. But when I'm back home, I tend to go into a cold lake um, and spend time there. Um, UV sauna work or sauna work, um, again, I think is one of my favorites in terms of, you know, the benefits from a mitochondrial standpoint. And really, if you think about everything that you and I are discussing, everything that's um, discussed in the biohacking world, we're all focusing on improving our mitochondrial function, right? So we want to increase density. We also want to make sure that they're functioning properly. And that's mm -hmm. part of the fasting autophagy, mitophagy. But we also want to make sure that, um, you know, they're burning energy more efficiently. And so mm -hmm. when you are uh, keto adapted, the fatty acids that are used to produce the ketones are not making as much in terms of ROS or the reactant oxygen species. So we're getting less inflammation. Everything else that in terms of biohacking world, the cold, the heat, um, the fasting, those things are all focused on doing the same thing, right? Decreasing inflammation, improving our mitochondria so that when we utilize energy, we're basically supercharging our mitochondria. Mm. So every biohack that I do really looks, I look to see, okay, is there a benefit in terms of my mitochondria? Is there really research to support it? And if there is, then I'll try it. If I see a benefit in terms of markers, I check a lot of lab markers, HRV, then I'll recommend it to people. So those are kind of some of the major ones. Yeah, it's true. Like uh, the, the mitochondrial theory of aging is becoming more mm -hmm. popular about, you know, what's the root cause of disease and all the other, uh, even like neurodegenerative disease and uh, mm -hmm. gut bacteria, dysbiosis, they're also all associated with like the mitochondria. So it's Correct. one of the most important, which is interesting. Yeah. And what's interesting is that if you think about it, a lot of theories that are discounted in the past in the medical community come back around, you know, 50, 100, 200 years later. And for some reason we realize, Oh, you know what? That guy who was uh, saying this was actually right. You know, he ended up being in a mental Institute because he got shunned by the medical community, but there's so many instances in specifically medicine that we were wrong at the time and now we we realize oh wow there really is some benefit so like you know for instance in terms of mitochondria and cancer function you know, dr sifrit is really looking and pushing the envelope uh dominic diagostino is also looking at you know exogenous endogenous ketones and the impact on cancer and we're noticing that absolutely a lot of this is a dysregulation of mitochondrial function which is leading to fermentation which is leading to you know, hormonal signals that are activating probably a genetic predisposition to whatever it is that the person has. But if you can go back to the source and, and impact the mitochondria, you're, we're seeing benefit in terms of a lot of these diseased processes. And so I would do anything um, that is safe to try to make sure that I'm benefiting my mitochondria and making them stronger. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And uh, I think it even goes beyond the last few years like you have to kind of look at what people did in the ancient times mm -hmm. like shamans or or these oh, yeah. ayurvedic yogis they also said the similar things about how to balance your nervous system and uh, how to kind of maintain youthfulness in this sense so a lot of the we're kind of circling back to all all of these different ancestral health practices yeah and the interesting thing is you know if we do not understand something we tend to discount it as, you know, woo-woo science. But if you think about it, I mean, Chinese medicine is 5,000 years old. Um, the monks used to go and meditate and reach nirvana. Well, I'm, I'm assuming probably some of that nirvana is because they were in deep ketosis. They weren't eating. And so, yeah, I'm sure there's a spiritual component, you know, being in Zen, but also I'm sure they were in deep ketosis and that contributed to their um, ability to reach nirvana. You know, in, in that setting, so you asked me about other biohacks, so simple biohacks. And what I'm also trying to focus um, on this side of the, the world is that you do not need to be a mil millionaire in order to be a biohacker, right? So it's great to have your own private, whatever you need, um, you know, million dollar equipment, but majority of the world can't afford that. And so how do you, you know, get healthy again? What are simple things that you can do? Jumping in a lake is, you know, potentially free, right? Yeah. Um, having a gym membership and going to use the sauna. If it's not a UV sauna, okay, but you're still going to get benefit from it. 
Um, simple things like fasting. Fasting is the cheapest biohack you can have, right? You just don't eat. Right. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> You're saving money. Um, so instead of focusing on, okay, I want to take a pill um, to, to combat every illness that I have, well, no, let's go back and look at things that you can do, right, that are, are safe, effective, and cheap. One thing that I've been focusing on is meditation and gratuity because those things have been shown, yeah, tremendous impact on overall stress levels, cortisol, insulin. For me, meditation has been very difficult because my brain is always going. And so I've been focusing on that thing. Um, so, you know, simple, five minutes in the morning, meditation, five minutes at night, gratuity. I've noticed, you know, it's decreased my stress levels and I've, I've felt much, much more in tune with kind of myself and um, the world. Mm, yeah, like the best biohacks and even the most effective ones are the cheapest ones. Like my, my own yeah. top three biohacks are like maybe meditation, fasting, and this cold heat thermogenesis alternating between them. So that, yeah. that's, those are the cheapest ones and the most bang for your buck in this sense. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and it, kind of, it, it kind of fit into the idea of uh, the process of deduction and elimination. You eliminate mm -hmm. all the potential things that could become uh, distractions and uh, that could lead to maybe inflammation and disease. So because it doesn't matter how many supplements you do take if your fundamentals right. are still false or faulty. Right. And it's this idea that, you know, let's take supplements, for instance, you know, antioxidants, all these things that we, we take, um, and we ingest. You're right. I mean, it's almost like you're using it as a suppressive mechanism where you're kind of affecting the symptoms, but you're not really driving to the root cause of everything that is actually um, happening. And so simple things like you just mentioned, um, going out into camping in the wilderness, you know, getting back in tune with the earth, grounding, earthing, you know, simple things like that, which do not cost a lot of money, are, are you know, very, very powerful to, to get back to your health and are, are cheap. You know, you don't have to spend a ton of money to do it. Mm. Yeah, and I think, like, the problem is that people are being misinformed by the mainstream medicine. And, you know, the, the mainstream medicine isn't designed to treat the individual. It's designed to kind of keep the population in this semi-disease state so they, they could profit from them by you know healthcare and uh, prescribing this different medicine to them yeah i mean if you think about it so the statin industry you know every year they make 36 billion dollars <laughs> so crazy. yeah i mean you know the conspiracy theorists will say well they're promoting this you know saturated fat is bad but you know it's a it's a business so um we need to get away from treating symptoms and actually go into the root cause. And I think when you're just giving medication, so let's take, you know, diabetes, for instance, which is a very common one. You know, we've been tr chasing the wrong number. We chase glucose, right? We don't chase insulin. And so we check hemoglobin A1C. If that's elevated, we start treating glucose. We give metformin, mm. right? Metformin actually can affect the mitochondria in a negative way. You know? In the biohacking world, people are starting to use it because they think that it's going to increase longevity. Mm. I personally would not use it. But we're not saying, okay, why is our insulin elevated, right? Why is our glucose elevated? We're just treating the number. And that I think we need to get away from. And we need to start focusing on the underlying cause, which everything that you and I have talked about on this um, podcast is really going to the root cause of what we want to try to accomplish. Yeah. And uh, I also like in, in the example of sleep, like uh, some the biohacking way would be to improve your sleep by taking some melatonin before going to bed or stuff like that. But the holistic way would be to look at why do you need to take melatonin? Why do you fail to allow your brain to enter into this parasympathetic state and to go into the deeper state of sleep? Maybe right. you kind of expose yourself to blue light. Maybe you ate the wrong foods. Maybe you're too stressed out because of working too much or something like that. So you have to still take care of the fundamentals and use a minimal minimalistic approach to your health in terms of that. Absolutely. I'm sure, you know, when you were, you were preparing for the biohacker summit, you were probably not sleeping as much as you normally do. Um, you know, but I think addressing all those things that you just mentioned, instead of taking melatonin, because if you take external metal, melatonin, you can suppress your own endogenous production of melatonin. If you do it for long enough, um, you know, studies look at people who take um, sleeping pills, 
And, you know, number one, you don't actually get into that deep sleep that you, you really need. Number two, people become addicted to where if they're not taking it, then they can't fall asleep. Hmm. And same thing happens in, you know, the biohacking world. If you just take melatonin and say, okay, well, I'm going to get my deep sleep. Well, then you're, again, not addressing the root cause. Maybe you have your TV on it late at night. Maybe you're on your iPhone. You know, maybe you have halogen lights that are keeping your melatonin suppressed. Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, new, new research is looking at melatonin production in the pancreas, right? Which is crazy. You wouldn't think the pancreas would make melatonin. Well, if you eat late at night, what happens? You suppress your melatonin. And so what we're noticing is that there's so much interconnectivity in our body. And one of the issues with modern medicine is that everybody has become a specialist. So if you're a cardiologist, all you think about is the heart. If you're a neurologist, all you think about is the brain. Instead of looking at more, like you said, as a holistic approach, which is, okay, everything is connected. So if you eat late at night, not only is it affecting you know, your parasympathetic nervous system, it's impacting your melatonin, so you're not sleeping well. And you get into this vicious cycle where you're, you're not sleeping well, so your cortisol is up, your insulin is up, so you're hungrier, and you're specifically hungrier for carbohydrates, so you eat more carbohydrates, and then you can't sleep well. And it's this vicious cycle that, unfortunately, we get into and it's very difficult to get out of. So we have to address all these things as one kind of holistic approach. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I think I recall like that one night of sleep deprivation is already going to practically make you diabetic <laughs> the next day at least. Yeah, and I can tell you from personal experience, when I used to have to work uh, all night, I was starving. I mean, I was miserable, tired, obviously, but I was starving. And I wasn't looking for protein. I wasn't looking for fat. I was looking for simple, quick carbohydrates. Yeah. You know those graham crackers? I don't know. Uh, in the United States, we have their little graham crackers. And it's basically high fructose corn syrup, uh, flour, and probably some you know, uh, processed chemicals. Mm -hmm. I would down those things because my brain was saying, hey, you need to eat sugar. Um, and so I think if we kind of reverse it and start focusing on everything that we've talked about, nutrition, sleep, fasting, you know, other biohacks, you can get back to really kind of suppressing the root cause of all these diseases and make our society actually healthy again. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The fundamentals are where it's at. But uh, at the same time, you know, there are still some supplements that do work and that they can be used very effectively. So what kind of supplements do you take? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> after we've said, okay, I do everything uh, naturally. Um, I, I personally do take supplements um, and I do it for a couple of reasons. So I'll take an omega-3 supplement um, because it's very hard in our kind of uh, society to get the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 that we want. You know, average American will have one to 20. So 20 omega-6 to one omega-3. We want it to be, you know, two to one or one to one. So I get a very high quality omega-3 from a source that I trust because if you go to like just the regular store uh, and buy omega-3 off the shelf, it's probably rancid and it probably doesn't have the omega-3 that you want. So it's actually quite dangerous. Yeah. So I do take that. Um, I take a salt um, substitute uh, or salt tablet because I do a lot of exercising and so I don't want to have you know muscle cramping. I take magnesium. Um, specifically for cramping, but also for mitochondrial function. And I have found that the magnesium that works best for me is actually the topical. So it's a spray, natural magnesium that absorbs better than the oral, and it doesn't give you diarrhea. Um, I've been working with other things here and there. I take uh, uh, niacin um, as well, and um, you know, zinc, some vitamin B, B12 here and there. Um, let me think of what else. I'm sure I take more, but um, those are the major ones. Vitamin D, maybe. Nope, no vitamin D. Okay. No, so vitamin D, my vitamin D levels on our uh, reference range is 60. So I think normal is about 20 or 25. Hmm. Okay. Vitamin D supplementation, maybe for if you're in the Nordic country where a lot of times there's no sun exposure for a lot of times of the year, then yeah, vitamin D supplementation is, is, is something that you would want to recommend. I live in California, so it's always sunny. Um, one of the biohacks that we didn't talk about is, you know, light exposure, hmm. photobiomodulation, which I do a lot of. So I have a um, Juve light that I use every day because I wake up very early. 
And so I want to get my circadian rhythm back on its normal rhythm. So I wake up around 4, 4.30, and I'll do the light exposure. But I'll also go out in the middle of the day around noon. And, uh, you know, my neighbors probably know this, but I'll be shirtless. I do wear pants, so don't worry. Um, but, you know, I want to get as much uh, exposure to light as possible. Yeah. But I don't do it for three or four hours. I don't want to get, you know, sunburned. Right. But, I, but in the medical community, we've told people sun is, is so evil that you should never get sun exposure. Well, no, that's not true. And you need the sun to actually activate the, the active form of vitamin D. Mm, yeah. So long story, but yeah, basically, if you have adequate sun exposure, you do not need vitamin D supplementation. If you're in societies where a lot of times you don't get sun exposure, then yeah, I mean, it's something you would want to consider. Yeah, sunlight is one of those, another one of those things that tends to get neglected. And it's mm-hmm. <laughs> actually like the, another one of those pillars of uh, good health and proper Absolutely. circadian rhythms. Absolutely. And the circadian rhythm thing, I know we don't have much more time, but uh, is fascinating. And I think that's one of the areas of research right now where, you know, your gut microbe has a circadian rhythm. Um, your hormones have circadian rhythm. Even your pancreatic secretions have circadian rhythm. Every organ has its own circadian rhythm. And if you get outside of that circadian rhythm, you know, you're not going to have optimal function of, of your organs. So yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. And uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you as well. And we're, we're yeah, starting to wrap this up as well. Like, uh, where do you see the ketogenic diet going in the coming few years? Yeah, I think it's, it's here to stay. And I think it's here to stay because people are seeing results, not only from a weight loss perspective, but from a health perspective. So people are seeing their joints feel better. They don't have arthritis. You know, their brain function is better. And the research is there now. So people have noticed that this is not a fad. This is not something where, you know, you drink three shakes a day, uh, you know, consume 600 calories, lose 50 pounds, and you feel like you're going to kill everybody because you're so you know, miserable. This is a sustainable way of eating that's normal, natural, historically relevant. I think the days of saturated fats being the, you know, the end-all, be-all evil thing that we've created them are gone. My concern is with anything that becomes popular, you start getting product placements, um, you know, kind of snake oil salesmen that come into the market and, and just want to push products. So I think as long as we get away from you need to consume these products in order to be in a ketogenic state in order to be healthy, then I think we will be okay. I see it the next phase being a combination of a ketogenic way of living with biohacking, which is really kind of the optimization of, of our human uh, being. And I see kind of what you guys are doing over on Europe, really pushing the envelope. There's some people on this side that are also pushing the envelope. And I hope to be you know, one of the people who is a part of the, the kind of transition of, of overall health for our, our population. Yeah, that's, that's one of the best ways of describing it, that it has to be like a holistic lifestyle, not just diet and yep. every, everything else. Well, do you have like any, any other upcoming projects or specific work that you would like people to look out for? Yeah, so, um, you know, I do the Keto Hacking MD podcast with Jimmy Moore. You can find it on iTunes or wherever it is. Um, you know, I'm working on a biohackmd.com website where basically it's, I'm going out and interviewing uh, all the people in the fields that are specifically in biohacking. So going to the source to see what's the actual research that's there. Um, and then, you know, basically just highlighting things that you and I have talked about where how do you actually implement this into your life? Hmm. Um, and those are the things that I'm really focused on. I'm coming out with a book probably January, February of next year with uh, Jimmy Moore on the topic of uh, ketogenic lifestyle and biohacking, which I think will be a good guide um, for people to kind of figure out how to implement this into their life. And, um, you know, I'm on social media John Lemansky, MD, um, feel free to, you know, ask questions if you have. But um, yeah, I've, it's been a real pleasure, Tim, and um, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, and uh, before I let you go, I want to ask my last question, which is like, what's yeah. this one piece of habit or practice that uh, you wish you'd have adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Yeah, meditation. Hmm. Um, I think, 
I would, you know, I, I don't like to describe myself as a type A personality because I'm not, you know, aggressive and stuff like that. But when I say type A, I mean, I'm always thinking, I'm always uh, reading, or I'm always engaged in something where my brain is always active. It's one of the hardest things that I've had to work on to slow it down and really just kind of meditate, you know. And so, you know, we tend to, in our way of living, focus on the things that we are good at, right? So we know what we're good at. We tend to gravitate towards that. And we try to kind of eliminate the things that we're not good at. Or the flip side is you probably should be focusing on the things that you're not good at. So for me, that's meditation. So I wish I had been doing that for a lot longer. I think uh, my overall stress levels, cortisol levels would have been improved. But it's something that I'm, I'm constantly working at. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people do say that meditation is the one thing, and uh, I, I do. I'm, I myself would have to also say that it is one of those life-changing habits that yeah. makes everything else better, and uh, it's it's awesome. Yeah, and, and I've found that I'm actually much clearer in my thinking yeah. throughout the day now. So, be, you know, before I was, I have a lot of thoughts, and they're all kind of jumbled up. Now I feel like I'm very focused. I'm able to condense my thoughts and act on them much better. So in a way, it's actually more effective um, throughout the day. Yeah, which yeah. Is great. Take the time and meditate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm definitely looking forward to more of your podcast episodes. And they're 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 awesome to listen to, and uh, looking forward to your book as well. Yeah, thank you so much, and uh, thanks for having me on. I love what you're doing, also, and uh, we'll have to connect again soon. Yeah, definitely. I'll see you next time. That's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Power podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on the iTunes or the other social media platforms. Definitely check out the show notes for the topics that we discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.